from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for our gathering this morning that we have a chance to come here and worship and praise you. And this is ultimately what this passage is about, is about our worship before a holy God. I pray that we would respond to it well. You would guard and guide my words, that they would be your words, not mine or of any man, but they would be from your word. That all of our time here this morning, our thinking and our praise would lead to the worship of your Son, Jesus Christ, our head. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, for those of you who, who weren't with us the past few months, we were going through a series on difficult questions and objections to the Christian faith, and I was so happy to be done with that and go back into easy stuff from 1 Corinthians, and I forgot what lay ahead. Recently, I came across an article that described various coming-of-age rituals in different cultures. One such ritual was the bullet ant initiation practiced by a tribe in the Brazilian Amazon. Now keep in mind, the bullet ant gets its name from the pain of its sting. And according to this article, here's the practice. They search the jungle for bullet ants which are sedated by a leader who submerges them in an herbal solution. The ants are then weaved into gloves with the stingers pointed inwards. An hour or so later, the ants wake up angrier than ever, and the initiation begins. Each boy has to wear the gloves for ten minutes. Enduring the pain demonstrates the boy's readiness for manhood. So, few cry out as doing so would demonstrate weakness. 
Each boy will eventually wear the gloves 20 times over the span of several months before the initiation is complete. Various cultures have various practices and customs as to what demonstrates or marks someone out as a man or, alternatively, as a woman. These cultural practices, though different and variable, highlight an underlying principle that masculinity and femininity mean something. It means something important that there are proper ways to demonstrate masculinity and femininity. And how we demonstrate that is often defined by context and culture. But it raises the question, do we need these customs and traditions that demonstrate masculinity or femininity? Are, are such things a thing of the past, or a thing of the under-civilized? Or is it still important in some way to demonstrate male and female in some observable manner? We may even look to Scripture and find the impetus for getting rid of male and female distinctions. For example, we could read what Paul says in Galatians 3.28 where he says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There, Paul says, all kinds of people, no matter what kind of person you are, you have equality in Jesus Christ, you have equal access to salvation and life in him through Jesus Christ. We're all equal in that regard. So, does that mean we can get rid of gender distinctions? There's neither male nor female. And we come to 1 Corinthians 11 and are reminded that gender distinctions matter. And Paul writes to instruct the church in this. In the context, chapters 11 through 14 in 1 Corinthians are actually all about orderly worship. Next week we'll talk about communion. After that, we'll talk about the exercise of gifts, and we'll get into love. And all of those things and all those subjects, Paul is concerned about. Paul, who wrote this book, this letter to the Corinthian church, he is concerned about orderly worship. How do we worship in a way that honors God? And here, Paul talks about gender distinctions and why they matter and why they're present by God's design. So Paul will give counsel to the Corinthians. His counsel, I think, can be summed up in this way. This is kind of a summary of the underlying principle that runs through this whole passage. That men and women must glorify God together by honoring God-given gender distinctions. It's a little wordy. I'll say it again. We'll have it on the screen throughout as we go. But the underlying principle for this complicated passage is this. And men and women must glorify God together by honoring God-given gender distinctions. Again, this is a complicated passage. Paul's going to use arguments from context and cultural practice. He's going to use arguments that are theological and biblical. He's going to argue from creation and designing creation. He's going to argue from common sense, what you observe. And figuring out his lines of argument can be confusing. There's a lot of exegetical challenges with this passage. I'm not going to cover every question that might come up. So this kind of serves as a north star for us to guide us through the text. It's all about this underlying principle that men and women must glorify God together by honoring God-given gender distinctions. I'm going to take us through four lines of argument that Paul uses. And his first line of argument is just from divine order. And that's what he talks about in verses 1 and 2. He's going to make his argument from divine order that 
how we conduct ourselves in worship as men and women actually has its grounding in who God is and how he relates to himself. Look at verse 2. Verses 1 and 2, or 2 and 3, sorry. We see Paul's argument from divine order. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So first things first, as Paul introduces this section in 1 Corinthians on worship, he says, hey, I want to give you guys a good high five here, commend you, you're practicing things that were delivered to you, and as I taught them to you, good job, keep going, but here's some, I've got some notes. So he's going to start with a compliment, and then he's going to get into an encouragement, some counsel, something he wants us to know first. And first, he reminds the Corinthian church of the order of relations that comes from God and is grounded in God himself. Notice, this is not bound to culture. This is not bound to context. This does not vary from place to place. This is an argument that grounds itself in who God is. So it has universal applicability and is universally true. It's a universal principle of who God is and who we are in him. And first, Paul says, the head of every man is Christ. Notice the word every. Does that exclude any male or any man? No. Whether it is recognized or not, whether you like it or not, the head of every man is is Christ. We all, all of us, if I can say it crudely, are subjected to him. He is our authority. He is our head. He is our Lord. He is the one who is above us, which means that no one lives without authority over them. Christ is the head of man, which leads Paul down to the second foundational reality. The head of every woman is man or the head of a wife is her husband. And here's where we get to our first interpretation challenge. Because the Greek word for man is the same word for husband, and how you translate that depends on context and how it's used. But it's the same word. Same thing with woman. There's just one word that can be translated woman or wife. So as you're interpreting, you have to figure out, is this talking about general men and women? Or is it talking specifically about wives and husbands? Different translations will translate it differently. If you translate this as the head of the woman is man, you might be led to believe that all women everywhere are under the authority of every man. I don't think that's what this is saying for a number of reasons. So is this saying only that the head of a wife is her husband? And I don't think that's the case either. What Paul is saying is that according to general creation design, generally speaking, the head of the female is the male, and that applies specifically to the marriage relationship and as it's worked out in the church, as you guys come together and worship, and I think that's what he'll explain over the course of the passage. There's this general creation principle 
of male as head that must be worked out in wives and husbands and in the church. And this is where a number of people just check out and say, I'm done. That might be you. And there's a challenge in this. So I would encourage you, follow with me to the end. Ask yourself as we're going, what does Scripture say? How should I apply this? Is this offensive to me because the Bible is wrong? Or is this offensive potentially because the way I've been culturally conditioned? Do we need to interpret this in such a way that it takes all the sting and offense out of it so we can just be appeased? My encouragement to you again is just follow along the way. Let us come to Scripture and let it guide and teach and instruct us. Because Paul will ground his teaching in a more foundational truth that the head of Christ is God. He goes back to the Godhead. Here Paul speaks to the relationship of the Trinity, the Father and Jesus Christ, his Son. And we know the truth of what Paul says. Does Jesus submit to the Father as his head? That's one of the things we praise Jesus Christ for, his obedience. Jesus himself said in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even as Christ rules over all creation, he still submits all things to the Father and will in the end. So 1 Corinthians 15.38 says, When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. It's a confusing verse. What's saying is, Jesus Christ, well, once he has fully established his reign over all things, will then give all things over to his head, the Father. And on the cross, we know Jesus Christ submitted to the Father, even to death. Philippians 2.8 says, being bound in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus lived a life of perfect submission to God, the Father, the head. So we ask, does that mean that Jesus Christ is lesser than God? Does that mean that Jesus, in his being, in his essence, as God, is he somehow a lesser God? No. We uphold the full divinity of Jesus Christ. That he's no less God than God the Father, God the Spirit. Co-equal in substance, in essence of who they are, in value and worth and dignity as divine. And yet, there's a difference in role. In the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, he plays a role of being submitted to his Father, his head. Which I think teaches us that we can have an equality in essence and worth and value while we play different roles. It's true for Jesus and the Father. It's true as we have parents with their kids. Ought kids be obedient to their parents? Yes, that's like one of the Ten Commandments, right? Do we think kids are lesser human beings? Sometimes. Uh, no, uh, no, they're not lesser human beings. They're as fully human as we are. You have employees and bosses. You have different roles and, and, th- and places to play. In the military, there is rank, right? And that's how the organization functions. And if it didn't have that rank and order, the whole 
group, whole community, would crumble. That's necessary to the ordering of the military. Does that mean that they're more or less human? No, no, no. But our world, I think, is trying to tell us and convince us that if anybody submits in anything, if anybody has, doesn't have full authority, then you are lesser as a person. And that's a lie. That's not true. Difference in role doesn't necessitate inequality in worth and value. I don't think we should be surprised that one of Satan's schemes, I believe, is to eliminate role and gender and dismantle the idea of healthy authority and leadership and following. Because we find it in the way God teaches and he exists even in Father and Son. The church has an opportunity to show Difference in order and relationship, and equality in value and worth. And that's what Paul's going to show. And he's going to tell the Corinthians where they've gone wrong in this. So his first line of argument is from divine order. His second line of argument is from Corinthian error. He's going to tell, this is, this is where you've gone wrong. This is how I want you to fix this. So Paul's second line of argument is from Corinthian error. In verse 4 through 6, verse 4 through 6, where he says, you've messed this up a little bit in your worship, and I'd like you to fix it. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now first, there's something that's really easy to miss in this, and it's an important truth of this passage. Who prays or prophesies in the church? As the church is gathered, whose voices are heard? Only men? No. Paul's very clear. As you gather, you pray and people prophesy. We're going to talk about what prophesy means later in Corinthians. We're going to punt that for now. So we're just going to... Just as a basic definition, it's speaking a word from God. All right? So as a word from God is spoken, as people pray to God, both men and women do it. So any church that says, we will not have women's voices heard in this church, I would encourage to read your scripture better. Both men and women are taking part in the worship. And that may have been contrary to some practice in the day. There are Roman pagan religions where women were sectioned off and only men were able to speak. Uh, you know, in the Jerusalem temple itself, there was a point at which women could not go in. There was a court of women, and then inside the court of, Gen- uh, court of Israelites, that only the male Israelites could enter. I don't know how the practice worked out in synagogues, which are lower local Jewish houses of worship, how men and women's roles played out. But here in the church, Paul has a commendation for them that as you both pray and prophesy, there should be order to it. So it's not whether or not women should speak or have their voices heard. It's just how they do it. That's the point. And in that vein, or in that light, Paul commends the custom of head coverings. Now, what are head coverings? There's a couple different theories. One may be that it was a custom of hairstyle that women wore their hair braided and, and curled and kind of put on top of their head. And if you look at ancient statues, inscriptions, and art, you would find that. 
especially women who are married, as they were out in public and wear their hair in that style. That might be what head coverings were. And in that culture, in that custom, or in that time and custom, if a woman were had her hair uncurled, unbraided, just straight down, free flowing out in public, it according to custom and culture, might indicate that she was a loose woman or if she was married, rejecting her husband and his authority. So there was contextual significance to how women wore their hair. could also be that head coverings were kind of a shawl, a part of your garment, your robe, put over your head. So if you ever see a painting of Mary, if you see a painting of Mary, you'll notice that she has a shawl over her head. That's also what a head covering might have been. Sometimes males wore head coverings. We find a couple pictures of Roman emperors, the culturally elite and powerful as they wore their toga, might cover their head, and it was a a, a sign of status and prominence and eliteness, if that's a word. And Paul's going to say, given all those cultural customs, women, as you are gathered together, as they pray or prophesy, should have a covering on their head. I think he's talking about the shawl. He says to men, when you pray or prophesy, you should not have a head covering on. Again, maybe to avoid flaunting status, but also to avoid the appearance or the custom of females. Paul says, if you cover your head, you dishonor your head, playing with words. And who is the head of man? Christ. If you cover your head, you dishonor Christ. And, I think Paul's saying, you dishonor yourself, your own head. And if a woman uncovers her head, she dishonors her head, her husband, and her own head. It would be a very obvious, in that time and place, sign of disavowing the male leadership of her husband. It would be like taking the wedding ring off and dressing inappropriately. And some men may have been led into this kind of practice thinking, hey, we're free in Christ. We can worship as we see fit. We're all one in Christ. And Paul's going to say, no, actually, your gender distinctions matter. And how you portray them in church as you gather matters. He says to have your head uncovered as a woman in that time would be just as dishonorable as having your head shaven. Now, we know we can shave heads for various reasons, and women might have their head shaved for various reasons. For example, somebody undergoing chemotherapy. But at the same time, in that time and place, to have, for a woman to have her head shaven would be a sign of shame and dishonor. I'm reminded of, and you may have seen the movie Les Miserables, and I was thinking particularly the, the recent iteration with Anne Hathaway. There's a scene where her head is, hair is cut short, shorn, and it's part of a scene where she kind of is pushed further into dishonor, shame, is dehumanizing, demoralizing for her. It's a, it's a dishonoring thing for her that has put upon her cruelly to have her hair cut off. Different cultures and different places, that is a sign of dishonor. And Paul's saying that's what's happening here. 
in this practice of head covering, they were not expressing their gender distinctives in a proper way, and it brought dishonor to their whole worship. Which brings up the question now, for us, is that true for us? For head coverings, should men not have head coverings, and should women have head coverings as they gather in church? We'll save that question until the end. We know that you know, even now, today, that still kind of means something. And I know this because I was at the Chiefs game on Thursday night, and there was a moment where I was required to remove my head covering during the star angled banner. Take it off. So some ways, you know, what's on our head still kind of means something in certain places, right? So it's not crazy that this would have significance and symbolism here in this culture. Do we need to do this now? Well, we'll answer that, but first I want, I want to point out the difference and something you need to know when interpreting your Bible, the difference between universal principle and local application. As you're looking at Scripture, determine, as you're studying, what is a universal principle that is true everywhere at every place, and what is a local application or a contextual application of that principle? So, for example, in 2 Corinthians, the church is commanded by Paul to greet each other with a holy kiss. And when we had our greeting time earlier, I saw very few kisses. I think maybe none. Are we not listening, obeying scripture? No, we understand there's an underlying principle in that, which means just greet each other warmly as you gather together. Be warm and hospitable in your greeting and affectionate with one another. That's all Paul's saying. And in that time and place, you did that with a kiss. There's other principles like the laws of the Old Testament. Uh, one law, Deuteronomy 22.8, which says that if you build a house, you should have a parapet around the wall on the roof. That was a law. That's a local application of a universal principle. What's the universal principle? In your dwelling, be concerned about the safety of others, that they won't fall off your roof as you're walking on. That's a universal principle. We should be concerned about the safety and security of others. It does not mean we all have to go build little low walls on our roofs. That's the local application of that. So we do that in all of Scripture as we study it. What is the universal principle? What is the contextual application? So we'll answer the question of head covering as we go on. But we see that this command for head covering is grounded in a universal principle. It's actually grounded in creation itself and the way God has designed creation. So we move to Paul's third line of argument, the argument from creation design. Verses 7 through 12. Paul goes back to the design and order of creation itself. Look at verses 7 through 12. Here's his argument from creation design, why the church should conduct itself this way. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Here's the key to understanding what Paul's saying here. He's going back to creation, back to Genesis 2. And really, Genesis 1. Going back to creation itself, the way God ordered things, and Paul says, man is the image and glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. Now, does that mean, according to Paul, that woman is somehow not the image of God? No, that's not what he's saying. He knows Genesis 1.27. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Which tells us that male and female both created the image of God, both image bearers. We know that to be true. What's Paul's point? His point is that there is an order that is not accidental, not unintentional. There is a specific order in which God created men and women, and there's reason for that. That God created man first, and what was the purpose of man? The purpose of man was to give God glory by working and keeping the created world cultivating all of creation to bring honor to God. That was man's purpose. Why was the woman created? There's a very specific purpose and intention behind that. The woman was created second out of man to help and assist man in bringing God glory. That's the creation design. There's order in it and there's a reason for it. Woman was made to come alongside and help man in this task of giving glory to God. That's Paul's point. And the origin of each speaks to where the glory goes. And to help illustrate this, think of a painting. We look at a painting, who do we give glory to? The artist, from whom the painting came. And Paul's just getting at, where did these two come from? Man came directly from God, we give God the glory. Woman came directly out of man to show the greatness of man and the glory of God. And together they both highlight the glory of one another, as they all give glory to God. And all Paul's point in all of this is, there's an order. And that should not be reversed, because it was designed with intention by God. Don't miss a very obvious implication in all of this. Man needed help. God created man to give him glory, and he said, this is not going to do. You know, it's like looking at a 19-year-old who's unmarried. He's like, okay, this fella needs help. That's basically what happened in the creation account. God made man to give him glory, so this is not going to be sufficient. So he created women because more help was needed. Right? That's the whole point. So if any man gets any stupid thought of being superior or that men are more intelligent or more capable, or no, the whole point was you were incapable on your own of bringing glory to God, and you needed help with that, and two of you together are going to do that. So men, you were created first, and because of that, you do have a distinct place of responsibility, of accountability, uh, of representation. You have a part to play in this as the male, and there's something significant to that. You have accountability for that. A place of, of unique relationship to God. And woman, you were created, and you also have an important and unique, valuable contribution as you come alongside the man. And again, Paul says, don't reverse the order. That's what he's getting at. He says, that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. A wife, as she uses the authority, she has to pray and prophesy in the church. And she has the authority to do that. Should also show self-control and proper order by having the symbol of authority on her head. And then Paul says something really weird. Because of the angels. And nobody knows what that means. Uh, I've read a ton of commentaries on this, or enough to know that there are seven or so different theories. Messengers could be, or angels could mean messengers, like people who came and visited, or could mean angels, like angelic beings. Here's my theory. I say it as a theory, not with any authority, but just what I think is going on here. I think Paul is reflecting on the fact that worship, that when you gather for worship, there's something supernatural going on. That worship is not just a TED Talk and a concert. That when you're gathered together, there's something supernatural that happens that God oversees it, and he does that through his angels. And I get that from 
the book of Acts, where King Agrippa takes worship to himself, and what happens? He dies, and the text says an angel specifically killed him. So there is this kind of understanding that angels may have been involved in overseeing the order and the purity of the church as it worshipped. We know supernatural stuff happens in worship, and we're going to talk about it next week. In 1 Corinthians, uh, back half of 11, talks about communion and people dying because they weren't taking communion properly. Supernatural stuff happens, right? This is not just a loosey-goosey thing that we're doing as we gather for worship. There is an order to it. There's a purity to it. There is a supernatural thing that is overseen, I think, by angels, maybe? I don't know. That's, that's what I'm just guessing at with this text. Paul's saying there, there's important stuff that we're doing. So keep the order that God intended. And then he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And there's Paul's qualification, lest any man use his authority or place or headship improperly. Here's a reminder. It's a qualification. Lest you think you're somehow superior in the place God has given you, remember where you came from. And throughout history, there has never been, nor never will be, a man not born of a woman. And you all owe your lives to your mothers. And this is a qualification to guard against abuse, lest the man use his place improperly. And part of the reason this text has so much uneasiness and tension with us as we read it is because we have seen what happens when males use their position wrongly or when anybody abuses a place of authority and headship. So Paul says, remember, you are not independent of one another. All things are from God. In other words, you all are responsible to give glory to God in this. So don't abuse or misuse your place. Consider the example of our God, the head of Christ. Did he coerce or force Christ to do anything? Was he abusive to his son? Did Jesus do anything against his will? No. Instead, the Father has led his Son through trial into glory so that the name of Jesus Christ is praised everywhere. If you want to know what it looks like to be ahead, you can look to the Father who has established all things that his Son might be praised. That is what a head looks like. And there are questions for us in our own home, in our own church. And I'll ask you, husbands, how are you honoring God, bringing glory to him, given your place by creation? You have, grounded in creation order itself, a responsibility upon you to make sure all that you're responsible for brings honor and praise to Jesus Christ.
God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. How are you stewarding that responsibility? And wives, how are you coming alongside and helping your husband in this? So that he may play his part well, and that you both may bring glory and honor to God. You each have a part to play, that God may be praised. And lastly, Paul brings an argument from common sense in verses 13 through 16. He's talked about divine order, the way they've gone wrong in Corinth, the establishing of that order from creation itself, and now he's just going to argue from common sense in verses 13 through 16. Say, so just look around you. Just, just by observing the world itself, this should be natural to you. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul asked the Corinthians, use your own common sense. Look around you. Can't you tell just by creation itself, by the way the world works, by nature around you, that there is a distinction between male and female? That's really what he's getting at. You should be able to use common sense to see there's a, a distinction, a physical, just a natural distinction between male and female. And he uses the example of long hair. We're talking about head coverings, hair specifically. Uh, long hair should tell you there are certain ways to dress that are unnatural for men, and there are certain ways to dress that are natural for women. And Paul says, long hair is a disgrace for man. Now, I have no worries about this, but there may be others for whom this is a question. Does this mean that in every time and every place that long hair is unmanly and disgraceful? There might be a couple people in the room who are you know, quivering at this right now, but I don't think that's Paul's point, that in every context and every place it is, un, it is disgraceful for a man to have long hair. I mean, look at Jason Momoa. I would not go to Jason Momoa, if you know who that is, and say, you look pretty unmanly and all your long hair. Uh, I would not go to ZZ Top, or Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, or um, Master of Puppets era Metallica, or some of the Chiefs players. I would not say to them, you know, your long hair makes you look pretty unmanly. That would not go well for me. I don't think that would be true to reality. Also, uh, there may be, you know, it's worth considering in this time, Many Jewish men wore their hair to their shoulders, and that wasn't considered long hair. I think Paul specifically is talking about hair that goes kind of down to the back. That is like the definition of long hair. But it tells you that different cultures, different custom places have different definitions of what long hair might be. So the length of the hair specifically, I don't think, is the actual point. The point that Paul's making is that there are certain ways we dress and certain biological distinctions and certain physical markers that are unique to male and unique to female. There's certain ways of appearing and presenting ourselves that are distinctly masculine or distinctly feminine, and Paul's saying just don't cross those lines. And I think what's interesting that even in the trans movement now, they affirm gender distinctions because if you know who Ellen Page is or Elliot Page, she cut her hair short as she transitioned to male. Why? Because we recognize there are things and traits that belong generally to masculinity and there are traits that belong to femininity. And long combed hair with sheen that goes down the back is that's a generally feminine thing in just about most cultures. So Paul's saying, just we know this. We look around, there are things that are distinctly masculine, distinctly feminine. Don't blur those lines. 
Some of those markers are culturally specific. So we would say it's not masculine to wear a skirt. But in Scotland, it's a kilt, right? That's manly. So these things are contextually and culturally specific. But we know when the line is being blurred and when somebody's trying to appear the opposite of their sex or gender. So we know when Harry Styles wears dresses out on a runway. We know what he's doing. He's trying to blur the lines of gender. Or Lil Nas X wears feminine clothing. We, we know what that's doing. And Paul's saying that kind of thing should not be happening in the church. Even though markers of masculinity and femininity will change in different times and places, where you're at, don't blur the lines because the distinction of male and female is important and has a design and a purpose according to God. And it's good. And it goes back to our underlying principle. Men and women must glorify God together by honoring God-given gender distinctions. So will we worship in such a way that men and women are both involved but honors the headship of male leadership in submission to Christ and the humble support of the woman as she comes alongside. Which leads to the inevitable question that we haven't answered, do we need to wear head coverings? And I say no, not just because I don't see many out there, but I don't think that's Paul's underlying point. If you females want to wear head coverings by conviction, great, go ahead, by all means. And some have and some do. But I don't think we are currently obligated. I think that counsel about head coverings is a local application of the universal principle. It had contextual significance in Corinth. It really doesn't mean much now for us where we are, whether or not we have things on our head in worship. So we need not be concerned about head coverings per se, but we have to be concerned about what they represent. That principle of gender distinction, male headship, in the church. Dan Doriani says, we can dispense with head coverings because they manifest the principle. We cannot dispense with male leadership because it is the principle. So the question is how we carry out this universal principle of gender distinction order in the church. And what does it look like? Well, for us, it means that in our prayer gatherings and leadership and even up front, you're going to see male and female. Even today, women leading in worship, women speaking from the front. In our ministries, we'll have women leading, women serving, using all their gifts. Because men and women must work together and bring honor to God. But in our church, you will also notice a pattern of male leadership. So in the authoritative teaching and preaching of the word, things like leading communion, even leading the congregation in confession and pardon, we're going to reserve some things for males to honor this pattern of male headship. Each church, each marriage, will have to work out how do you go by this pattern that is clearly laid out in Scripture. Some would say, we don't see the pattern, and we reject it. And I'd say, fine, that's that's between you and the Lord. But for us, we're going to have to work out the pattern that we think is clearly there laid out in Scripture in passages like 1 Corinthians 11. 
And the underlying principle, goal of all of it, is to give God worship. And in all of it, we're comforted. And I know I've gone long, but I'm wrapping up with this thought. The most important, maybe, of all. That when we fail in this, or when this is difficult, we have a wonderful example in Jesus Christ. And going back to verse 3, what do we notice in Jesus? He plays the part of both head and the one following. As the head of man, we see what kind of head we should be. One who is sacrificial, who is loving, who gave up his own life for the salvation of those under him. That's what scripture means when it talks about male headship. It's sacrifice for the glory of the other and the good of the other. Because that's what Jesus Christ was and is as a head. And we see an example in Jesus Christ of following and submission as he followed his head, the Father, submitting in all things. Isn't that wonderful? And for all of us, we have Christ as our example and as our Savior, as one who saves and gives honor to the Father. Do you pray with me? And Father, we praise you this morning that we have in Jesus Christ an example of humble obedience and following and perfect sacrificial leadership. And like all things, most greatly seen in the cross. We know from Ephesians 5, as Paul talks about marriage itself, this mystery of the union of man and woman, that really it is a picture, a metaphor, for the ultimate reality of Christ and his people. And Lord, as we exercise uh, these roles, or the context in which we're in, and pray that, that would be our goal, fully and finally, is to give praise and honor to Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel, that that would be our greatest concern. How can we, where we are at, give praise and honor and glory to the God who made us in his image? Help us with that, Lord. Help us do it humbly, faithfully, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.